1: World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to
2: Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a cloudy Friday afternoon, September 2009, from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, not speaking on behalf of the university. Uh, nor letting it speak for me, and I know my guest will speak for himself today as well. The uh, building is quiet at this moment. They have been replacing the uh, uh, fittings between the window casings and the walls or something like that uh, for the last week in this building, which houses classrooms and faculty offices. And the sound is like a – it sounds sort of like someone has left the – Television on in the next room to a NASCAR race, uh, very loudly. See here, <laughs> growl, growl, going on eight hours at a time, and it becomes quite uh, stressful. Others compared to a dentist drill. Um, today, though, they're not at work uh, for whatever reason. Maybe they've finished, so we're able to do the show in relative peace and tranquility here. Uh, it is. Uh, it's at a cloudy day. It is September. It is uh, football season. East Carolina looking to get back on its winning ways tomorrow, and the juggernaut that is the girls' uh, U14 Greenville Stars soccer team won its second game of the season last week under my uh, excellent head coaching, and I'll be keeping all you listeners up to date uh, uh, with the rest of our season, unless we start losing, and then we'll talk about other things, of course. Thanks, always, to uh, listeners who've sent in ideas for future guests on the show, and those especially who've contributed to the Civil War Talk Radio uh, book purchasing fund. Uh, you can send a contribution to that to Civil War Tr at AOL dot com uh, through PayPal, and that will be used to buy books for uh, uh, for the show, so we can read more things, and talk to more people. It's not a tax-deductible charity, however. Uh, there's no actual obligation other than my, uh, my uh, reputation on the line for actually buying books with the money I, I could just buy whiskey. Uh, uh, so you cannot deduct this uh, uh, money. It's not officially incorporated. But I will be happy to send you a copy of uh, uh, All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves, uh, two of my, my own books, yeah, in exchange for your donation to that fund, which is always welcome. Well, back in the uh, 70s, the Ewing's of Dallas were the uh, most famous uh, family in America, perhaps, beyond even the Kennedys. Uh, uh, everybody, it seemed, watched that show. I'm proud to say I never actually watched a single episode of the show, um, but apparently it was extraordinarily popular. That was... My college years and college students in those days did not watch TV. There were other things to do, and Mm -hmm. sort of a four-year hiatus from pop culture while you focused inwardly, and the entire world revolved around you. I see this with my students today. Certainly the world does revolve around them temporarily for that same span, and they are mystified when exams cannot be changed to suit their personal schedules and so on. But uh, in that, nothing has changed uh, since probably Socrates uh, was examining his students. So, uh, the Ewings were big time in the 70s, but before that, the Ewings of Lancaster, Ohio, or Leavenworth, Kansas, or many places, actually, were the most famous Ewing family in America. And we're going to talk today with the author of a new book called Thomas Ewing, Jr., Frontier Lawyer and Civil War General. The author of the book is Ronald D. Smith. Mr. Smith, are you there?
3: I am. Thank you Uh, for having me.
2: Well, thank you for being on the show. Um uh do, do you go by uh, Ronald or Ron? Uh, is it okay to call Ron you that? Ron is fine, yeah. And please call me Jerry. Okay. To, to save save time and get us sure. back on track here. Yeah. The uh Well, this book uh uh subtitles Frontier Lawyer and Civil War General and I gather from the dust jacket that you uh, although not a Civil War General, are, are a lawyer. I am. I practice law in Larned, Kansas,
3: which is uh, Right in the the ruts of the old Santa Fe Trail, as it heads uh, from Independence, uh, Missouri, all the way down to Santa Fe. Uh, the the town itself is a small town, but it's located in the fork of a, a couple of major rivers along the road. And uh, uh, kind of an interesting little sidelight uh, when this Tom Ewing uh, that r- raised his regiment, the Eleventh Kansas. A lot of the members of that regiment were teamsters from the old Santa Fe Trail, so there's kind of a little a little link there.
2: Yeah, uh, and it, did uh, did that spark your interest in uh, uh, in this particular story, uh, the, the local connection, or
3: no? Um, actually, I was living in Topeka, Kansas, uh, when I um, began to think about writing this book. Um, I was working for the Kansas Bar Association as their general counsel, and um, in 1986 or so, um, I was um, leafing back through a bar journal and happened to run across an article. uh, The bicentennial year in in 1976, um, the State Bar Association went up to Leavenworth, Kansas, and At the corner of 2nd and Delaware up there is uh, where the Ewing, uh, Sherman Ewing and McCook Law Office uh, used to stand. It's now a corner of a parking lot now, but uh, that's where they used to have their law office. uh, And, of course, uh, the interesting thing about that law firm is that all four members of it, uh, Tom Ewing, Hugh Ewing, Daniel McCook, and William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, all became generals in the Union Army during the Civil War, and it was kind of an unusual accomplishment. And uh, so we placed a commemorative plaque and uh, a little history box there in that parking lot uh, as part of the the state bar uh, bicentennial. And A few years later, uh, 10 or 12 years later, I was thinking about writing an update article on that, uh, on that event and on that law firm and I got to reading about them and I, had, I had of course read about Sherman. Uh, I didn't know too much about the Ewings or McCook and, uh, uh, began to read and read and a little more here and a little more there and by the time I finished started taking notes I had more than enough notes to begin the, a book and so, uh, began, instead of doing the article I did the book and, and, uh, Initially it was a very I tried to cover too much ground the first first copy of the manuscript was twice as long as what ended up going to the University of Missouri press who are the publishers and uh, they they made the awfully good suggestions of well you know why don't you cut out all this uh, or most of this about Sherman and, and just concentrate on Tom Ewing uh, there's not been much done on that on him or that family and and uh, that's what it is. did.
2: Well, you know, I, I said in the introduction this was a biography, but that really isn't strictly true because, as, as you point out, it's it's more a joint story of of Tom Ewing, his brothers, his father, yes. uh, and also uh, Sherman, and to some extent uh, Dan McCook, who, who the nexus of, of for all those is the, the law office you mentioned. Uh, so it's it really it is, a, it is a different sort of book in that sense. It's it's. A uh, story of these these individuals connected. Uh, right. well, tell tell us who all the McCooks or well all the McCooks would take a very long show. Tell us who all the uh, Ewings uh, are who you discuss well, in this book.
3: There were quite a few. Tom Ewing, Thomas Ewing Senior was uh, one of the last of the old lions in the Whig Party, uh, contemporary of, of Abraham Lincoln when Lincoln served his sole term in the Congress, and and also he was a two-time senator from uh, the state of Ohio and and served in uh, uh, Harrison's uh, cabinet as Secretary of the Treasury and then served in Zachary Taylor's uh, Whig um, uh, uh, administration as Secretary of the Interior. And um, very famous, uh, probably the most preeminent real estate lawyer in the country at the time, um and his sons um let's see i am trying to remember them all there's there were four boys, and I believe two girls um, um, one of whom Ellen married William Tecumseh Sherman, and the Shermans grew up um right across the street from uh the Ewings in Lancaster ohio and Of course, when Charles Sherman died suddenly um when comp Sherman was um nine years old uh... the sherman's had to farm the kids out to relatives and stuff because uh... charles sherman was left him sort of destitute he really wasn't uh, that wealthy and uh... thomas ewing senior volunteered to raise uh... comp sherman to sherman and um... brought him across the street and raised him as as one of his kids uh... in their household there in lancaster ohio and um uh, and then later on, of course, uh, uh, got it, got Sherman an appointment to West Point, and uh, things went off from there. Um, Sherman married Ellen in, in 1850, and and then um,
2: uh, so they were they were foster siblings, yeah, in a sense.
3: sure. And, and uh, they were educated in private uh, the private little academy that the Ewings and Shermans and and uh, one other family put together there in, in Lancaster which was how kids were educated uh, in those days if they could afford an education and uh, and uh, but the 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 two uh, the two Ewing's that I concentrate on the book uh, or in the book is uh, is Thomas Jr um and then Hugh Ewing uh, uh Hugh Boyle Ewing and uh, Hugh in, is an older brother um of thomas uh, Thomas and then Charles uh, Ewing was the actual youngest son, and um, Hugh had some West Point training as well, but didn't finish at west point uh, and uh but had some military training uh, which came in handy later on when they were looking for general officers uh in the in the army during the Civil war
2: now and and Dan McCook, who it becomes a partner with them. Uh, right. uh, did did the McCooks and have any connection when the the McCooks uh, were growing from,
3: up? the McCooks were really from Steubenville, Ohio, uh, which was over on the other side of the state, on the east side, and uh, um, basically the Ewings, uh, the McCooks were a were a power in the Democratic Party in Ohio. Uh, during that time very large family um, they there were quite a few that uh, went to the civil war um, and uh, uh, many of them including uh... uh daniel uh, were killed in the war um, uh... but uh, they the mccooks and the ewings actually hooked up when they got out into uh, into leavenworth uh, a lot of Ohio uh, folks, Ohio and Indiana and Illinois folks, were among the first wave of people coming out to Kansas uh, on the free state side uh, to uh, populate the territory in 1854. And um, uh, Dan came. Dan McCook came out in uh, oh, about 1857 and uh, was a solo practice lawyer for a while and then eventually went to, went in with uh, McCook and Sherman, or I'm sorry, Ewing and Sherman. And uh, Sherman in his memoirs indicates that he thought uh, Dan McCook was probably the best lawyer of the four of them in terms of just pure legal
2: skills. People don't think of uh, Sherman as a, a lawyer. Again, uh, I, I his training was rather uh, less than formal uh, <laughs> as a
1: lawyer.
3: Um, yes. Um, back in those days, you could... Uh, almost in some instances, just declare yourself to be a lawyer. And if uh, you could convince uh, the local judge to put you on the rolls of attorneys uh, in that jurisdiction, you could practice in that court. Um, Sherman, uh, when he was in the Army until about 1852, and then uh, I think that's the right date, and then his wife uh, talked him into leaving the Army. He became a banker on behalf of Turner and lucas um, in uh, st louis and and uh, spent a lot of time as a banker in California in their san francisco bank bank and then when that bank folded uh, he briefly was uh, involved with Turner and Lucas in New York on Wall Street um, but he primarily thought of himself as a banker he um at Leavenworth he when he when the bank in New York folded he finally came out to to Try to practice law with his brothers-in-law uh, in Leavenworth, and uh, uh, at that time he was very despondent. Very, uh, I, uh, he would uh, go off uh, for days at a time, and and was uh, very uh, work on the family farm over near Topeka that uh, his father-in-law was was trying to create a large acreage. Um, but uh, he really didn't practice law very much. In fact, in my book, there are several instances where uh, he, when he tried to practice law, he didn't have much success and uh, didn't really uh, like to be a lawyer. He'd rather work in the office and collect bills, which was more of a, a banker's thing. But um, uh, he covers this period a little bit in his memoirs, but it was pretty brief. He, uh, he doesn't take... He, doesn't indicate that he was any kind of a, a great lawyer at all, but uh, uh, yeah, he he was a lawyer in name, uh, but he certainly uh, considered himself a soldier more than anything else.
2: Now, I have in my notes here uh, uh, to ask you about the says uh, ask author about LeCompton uh, situation, about the the politics in Kansas. Yeah eighteen fifty's 1850s, another note, say, Remind, only one hour available. Um, <laughs> I would ask you to get it in before the break. Uh, give us the 45-second uh, summary of what was going on in Kansas when the well, uh, Ewings were out there. Uh,
3: the main thing was is that the federal government, uh, through the Jan- Jim Buchanan administration, was trying to impose a slave-oriented constitution on a. Uh, Territory where two thirds of the folks were free staters and uh, anti-slavery, and uh, uh, Ewing got involved in the politics of that because his overriding ambition in life was he wanted to be a United States senator, and, and uh, like his father, and and he um, he worked very hard to uh, in the free state cause to to uh, uh, make the free Staters a united voice against uh, against uh, the slavery constitution that was represented by the lecompton constitution in kansas and there was a lot of politics involved there was a lot of voter fraud going on in kansas at the time and most of it was by agents
2: of the federal government actually
3: rather rather interesting is that, so, 40, is that a 45-second version?
2: That was, that was excellent. That gets us right in in time. <laughs> uh, what we'll do now is we'll take a short break. Uh, we'll come back and talk more about Kansas politics and the outbreak of the war in the Ewing family. We're talking today with Ronald D. Smith. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: The Ewings of Ohio served the Union cause as generals, three different brothers. We'll find out about their wartime records when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Listen. Listen.
1: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real.
0: This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, Getting Serious.
1: It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen.
0: Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure. 1-800-BE-READY That's 1-800-237-3239 A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Welcome back. To Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ronald D. Smith, author of Thomas Ewing, Jr., Frontier Lawyer and Civil War General. Um, Ron, you uh, practice law, but I believe you mentioned uh, in our correspondence you also have some radio experience. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, a long time ago. Um, it,
2: it, well, I, I mentioned it because I, I said, give me a 45-second version, and you <laughs> hit it just on the 45. That, that's... a uh,
3: well, Radio it, uh, well done. yeah, it, uh, that uh, I used to be a um, uh, disc jockey when in during Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam, there was a uh, Armed Forces Radio and Television station in Saigon that was made famous by a later movie by Robin Williams called "Good Morning Vietnam." And, and right. um, but there was actually a station there, and there was actually an Adrian Cronauer and uh, uh, a bunch of us uh, nuts that were uh, had the fortune actually to to work there for uh because uh, a lot of the other guys in Vietnam they had a much worse situation than we did there in Saigon. So yeah, I spent about uh nine months there at the AFEN station in Saigon and did a little did a little bit of everything, um cutting uh uh spots uh with uh some crazy people like Pat Sajak, who was a, a disc jockey there at the time, has now gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, but um yeah. Well, I did a lot of uh, interesting things there and uh, uh had an interesting tour of duty.
2: Very much so. The uh, I, did, I can't really think of an analogy uh f- for civil war service or something like that, I suppose. I mean, the press was the only medium for communicating and yeah. there really wasn't a, uh, an army press service as such uh,
3: No, not really. Uh, Harper Harper sent out the, you know, illustrators all over. And that's kind of what I was at the time. I was a reporter for the United States Navy, and and um, I would take my camera and and go down and do stories on Navy Navy folks and boats and in country, and and uh, and that's where I did a little bit of my journalism background. But um, when I got back from Vietnam, uh, I didn't stay in radio or journalism at all. went went to law school, and here I am.
2: Uh. And uh, as we talked in the first segment, uh, your interest turned at some point to the uh, the, the Ewings and uh, uh, McCooks and Shermans and their their connection uh, through Kansas and through the uh, obviously through the Civil War. I think the uh, University of Missouri Press uh, probably gave sound advice uh, in suggesting uh, that you focus the manuscript as you've done here on on the Ewings. Uh, I would guess every listener to this show knows who Sherman was and probably knows quite a bit about his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do give enough in this book to sort of keep the thread going of what, what uh, Sherman is doing while his uh, foster brothers are, are doing other things. But, uh, but the real interest is in these figures that we don't know so much about. Uh, uh, Hugh Ewing, for example... Uh, joins an Ohio regiment uh, early on. He's the first right. one to really get involved. Uh, tell us a little bit about his well, military he, career.
3: He was, um, like I say, he he was the Ewing son uh, who had some military training and spent two and a half years at West Point, missed the, the Mexican War, went out to California to during the gold rush to try to make his fortune out there and then came back and practiced law. But when the Civil War broke out, um, he... Um, uh, uh, was initially was named as a, a regimental colonel of the 30th um, Ohio regiment and um uh, eventually started working his way up the the ladder um, became a brigadier um, and and uh, was in charge of the of a brigade uh, at Antietam uh, and um, uh, where they were clear over on the left side near the Burnside bridge and uh Interestingly, had Burnside uh, initiati- initiated his attack a little earlier in the day, instead of waiting as long as he did trying to cram six regiments across that little bridge, um, uh, Ewing and his brigade and Rodman's division were poised to swing around that flank and come down on Sharpsburg, and and uh, Robert E. Lee was in a mess at that point, and we might be talking about the end of the Civil War at that point, um, uh, and uh, Hugh Ewing was in a point where he was going to gain an awful lot of glory, but then, of course, um, A.P. Hill's uh, light division came up from Harper's Ferry and hit that Union flank over there and kind of messed up Rodman's attack and and hit Ewing's uh, uh, brigade uh, in the flank and threw him back, and and, uh, it was a mess from that point on and ended up as a stalemate uh, at Antietam. Uh, Hugh went on to, um, uh, his brigade went out to uh, the west when Sherman uh, got part of the corps, out the 17th Corps, I believe, um, but became uh, part of uh, uh, Sherman's uh, corps out there in the Vicksburg campaign, um, very instrumental in the uh, siege at Vicksburg, um, and became a division commander under, under Count Sherman. Um, and um, the kind of the highlight uh, of Hugh Ewing's uh, efforts as a commander was at uh, Tunnel Hill, which was the sideshow battle that Sherman waged uh, at Missionary Ridge uh, in late in November of 1863. Uh, and then of course, uh, uh, Grant and Thomas uh, had the glorious charge that went up Missionary Ridge. Uh, which I had a great great grandfather that was participated in that little episode, which was kind of interesting. But um, but Hugh Ewing, um, at, after Tunnel Hill there at uh, Missionary Ridge, his star kind of waned. Um, Sherman was reluctant to promote him to a corps command, and um, and that began a, a very strained relationship between uh, uh, Hugh Ewing and and Comp Sherman.
2: Now, do you suppose that it had something to do with what happened at Tunnel Hill, where where Ewing was ordered to make an attack uh, on, what, as you said, it was a sideshow for the, well, the main charge at Missionary Ridge? Yeah, but, but,
3: but if anyone is to be faulted uh, at uh, uh, at Tunnel Hill, uh, and I think um, uh, several uh, leading uh, historians would bear this out, and and uh, one of whom I can't recall who uh, indicated he thought that uh, Sherman. That was the lowest point in Sherman's career, and probably the worst battle that he ever generaled. Uh He he had four divisions there, and only one facing one division uh, under Pat Claiborne. and and uh, uh, he just he fed Ewing's division in there piecemeal, a brigade at a time, and they they just you know got whipped badly on that area, and and could have done a bull rush with four divisions and and uh, taken that position. Pretty easily, but uh, Sherman, for some reason, I in my book I I indicate this was very close after the death of his beloved son Willie, and um, Sherman was I don't think was he certainly wasn't a very good general at that point, and I think it was because he was a grieving father
2: and, and hard to concentrate. And, yeah, and, uh... yeah,
3: it, it really was, and and uh, uh, the loss of Willie just really discombobulated Sherman. He was he was. Uh, a mess uh, psychologically, and and um, but uh, yeah, this uh, I don't think Sherman ever blamed uh, Ewing, Hugh Ewing, for for Tunnel Hill, but uh, uh, for some reason they just did not get along, uh, and and part of it was Hugh wanted to be promoted, and, and Sherman um, uh, had some other officers he thought were better combat commanders, and and uh, and he just refused to promote uh, Hugh uh, and and the other thing was is that Hugh was a as a democrat a, a douglas democrat and generals uh, in order to get corps commands had to be i believe uh, approved by the congress and and uh, the rad- radical republicans uh, sherman thought uh, Hugh would have problems uh, in that regard and went so far as to to suggest to him that he go command some black troops uh, somewhere so that uh, he could get past the radicals in Congress in terms of uh, being the type of general that they would hold dear, but uh, he he refused to do that. He he told Sherman at one point. He said, "Well, you don't you don't like to use black troops in combat. Why should I have to go command them?"
2: So, uh, that that didn't work out for him. Now he did yeah. um, he did get posted to a command. Uh, what what looked like would be quite a, a nice command of the. Uh, Department of Kentucky, or the the military department that that covered all of Kentucky, but that didn't work out for him.
3: No. um, Grant and um, uh, Stanton, Edwin Stanton, uh, uh, each had a different person in mind for command there, and Stanton and the Ewing family uh, didn't get along very well uh, politically. They were all from Ohio. and. And uh, Grant wanted to, to have uh, Hugh Ewing have that command, but uh, Stanton had uh, another fellow in mind and uh, who was a, a Southerner uh, that was uh, kind of a galvanized Yankee, and and uh, was a Burbage, uh, Stephen Burbage, I think was his name, and uh, mm-hmm. Stanton re- preferred Burbage, and, and Grant couldn't get Ewing past Stanton, and the president didn't take sides in that, so uh, Stanton got his way.
2: And uh, that that left uh, Hugh Ewing with sort of a, a command of the hotel lobby, basically in, in, in <laughs> yeah, Louisville.
3: That's right.
2: Uh, as, as a not not the best position. Right. Well, while this is going on, let's uh, backtrack and talk about uh, Thomas Ewing Jr. for a moment. He uh, the, a good section of your book talks uh, about the the convoluted politics of, of pre Civil War Kansas in uh, in which eventually uh, Ewing uh, rises pretty far.
3: Yeah, he, um, as I say, he wanted to be, I mean, his, his ambition in life was to be a United States senator, and that required, in those days, uh, the state legislatures had to appoint you to the U.S. Senate. Uh, the senators were not popularly elected at that point and um so you had to have a lot of influence with your political party and and uh and that of course meant making friends and doing deals and and working with uh, people behind the scenes um but the the free State party right prior to the Civil war was uh, in Kansas was heavily divided between what Ewing called the war wing, which he likened to the the fellows like James Lane and and uh, John Brown um, of, of Harper's Ferry fame uh, they were considered the war wing and and they were people who literally were trying to pick a fight with the United States military and the United States government uh, over slavery and uh, they wanted uh, uh, the the to take up arms and fight the the cavalry and whatever else the federal government sent against them Ewing was a part of the moderate wing of the party, and he wanted, he said, you've got to do this uh, in a political way, uh, because if you allow the the war wing to take over and and the United States government, which in 1860 was, uh, the cabinet was dominated by Southerners, he said, they will, they'll come in and crush you like rebels, and, uh, and, and the. The free Staters will be considered the rebels uh throughout the country and and England and France, and everybody will be supporting the federal government, which will have to still have too much southern influence in it and He was very careful about the way he uh wanted to to impose a free state government in Kansas but yet not in such a way that would require a federal government reaction uh through the use of troops and uh so He was trying to to keep the he he was riding uh, two horses at the same time. Actually, he was trying to keep free staters involved in a constructive manner, Uh, but at the same time he was uh, trying to uh, to uh, work his own uh, magic and get enough support among free staters so that when Kansas did become a state, that he might be selected to to go to the United States Senate. Now it didn't work out that way. He. Uh, Lane uh, and and Pomeroy uh, became the first, uh, Samuel Pomeroy and James Lane became the first two senators uh, in Kansas, Uh, quite a bit of infighting going on in the state legislature at the time, and Ewing, uh, as part of a compromise that was made in the party, uh, became the chief justice of Kansas, uh, which was a popularly elected position, and And uh, among the Free Staters, I mean, he got the most votes as the Chief Justice, but it was for Chief Justice and not United States Senate.
2: So that was the role he was serving in when the war broke out, and uh, it took him a while to uh, enlist, but uh, you have a quote from him where he says, the Chief Justice uh, uh, should be an old man or crippled, uh, meaning all the young men ought to be in the war. That's right. And so he, uh, he did eventually enlist. Right. Uh, and he consultant. wrote that
3: letter to his father, and because, uh, Thomas Ewing Jr. had no, he had no military experience at all. Um, in fact, his father referred to him as the brat, and, um, he was kind of the youngest kid and kind of a favored kid, and, and, um, but, uh, he, he did not make, you know, he, he, he knew that when the, when Shiloh came and, and uh, everything was so bloody and it was very, very clear that uh, uh, the war was going to last a long time, he, um, he knew that he was going to have to get into it um, because otherwise there would be all these war, he- war heroes coming home after the war and they're going to all want to be United States senators too and he won't have any kind of a base to work from. So that's part of why he went into the Army when he did.
2: So, how uh, did he go in uh, as a private soldier? Did he oh, no. start his own regiment? Uh, he how, how started
3: he... his own regiment. He was um, he uh, was given authority by James H. Lane to raise the Eleventh Kansas Infantry Regiment, uh, part of three regiments at the time in in eighteen sixty, 1860, late eighteen sixty two, uh, and um, he um, or the summer of sixty two, I guess. And uh, he, like I say, a lot of these. Uh, Kids that were, and two of the future United States senators. um, uh, uh, Let's see, it was Edmund Ross and uh, oh gosh, uh, Preston Plum uh, were uh, from Kansas. uh, And in the 1870s and 80s, they were U.S. senators. But they were captains in the 11th uh, Kansas regiment, and uh, Ewing uh, raised the regiment, uh, trained them, what little training they got, and then went off with them to war um, in uh, the northeast Ar- or northwest Arkansas, which is where they did most of their fighting.
2: Well, we'll stop here and take a break, come back and talk about that military career of Thomas Ewing, Jr. We'll do that when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk.
2: More civilians died here in military action in one day than in any other day in American history until September 11, 2001. We'll find out about that grim Civil War Day when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk.
0: My husband and I... We met at a
1: strip mall
0: dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful
1: strip mall
0: built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the
1: highway on ramp.
0: For all the men who'd enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the
1: car dealership.
0: But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the 10 miles to the...
1: High-rise.
0: ...each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little...
1: Convenience store.
0: Downtown.
1: When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, Visit NationalTrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council.
0: Listen. Listen.
1: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Ronald D. Smith, author of Thomas Ewing Jr., Frontier Lawyer and Civil War General from the University of Missouri Press, uh, a new book that's about not just Tom Ewing Jr., but also his uh, siblings, other generals, uh, and their relationship with uh, Dan McCook of the famous Fighting McCooks of Ohio and William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, a uh, foster sibling of the Ewings, uh, part of an uh, an extended web of families all involved in the Civil War, and the relationships between them uh, that emerge as as we follow the careers of each of them through the war shows, in some ways, what a small world it was that uh, people knew each other. Uh, Ron, before we get back to the story, I thought the, uh, the public service announcement that they uh, that we play in, in the show before the last segment, the last uh, several shows has been the, the one about uh, historic places that are lost, and you described right. how the uh, the law office of McCook uh, Ewing, and sherman uh, uh, three names known uh, uh, widely known among civil war students everybody knows william T sherman uh, is now a parking lot right uh, so that that they 're not just kidding uh, they 're not exaggerating anything in that commercial uh, we 've lost a lot of interesting locations over the years now and there's
3: been that that little flap recently about uh, putting up the walmart next to the wilderness battlefield site there in virginia
2: uh and that has not gone well the uh the local uh, board of uh whoever they are has has, has voted to approve the walmart construction um whether that's the last say uh i don't know yet uh whether they'll actually be able to build that but it, it really is uh Short-sighted, it it seems to me, that that they're they're, they're not making any new historic Civil War sites. Uh, uh, When we lose one, it's lost forever. It can't be replaced. And you can really find another place for a Walmart. Here in Greenville, North Carolina, we don't have a lot of historic sites, but there was an attempt to to put a a Walmart in about uh, a few months, a year ago, in, in a place that was not on the proper zoning area. And uh, there was the hue and cry raised about this, uh, and, and the developers said, it must be done, we must have development. And it was defeated, and uh, this last week Walmart said, oh, we found another better site, and they're going to go there, and it fits the plan, and everybody's happy, and they'll get their store. Uh, but uh, there had to be resistance where that first one yeah. would have gone up in someone's neighborhood. And uh, Uh, One wishes the people at the Wilderness uh, uh, Battlefield could be as as forward-thinking and and not just giving in to the first uh, demand that they put that place on.
3: Well, there's a a large tract of land there um, between uh, the Fredericksburg site and Chancellorsville and Wilderness sites. Uh, There's a lot of land in there that constitutes the battlefield. I'm sure it's very difficult to keep developers from wanting to get in there.
2: I'm I'm sure people... Commute all the way to Washington from there, and the, yeah. the land is quite valuable. Uh, but again, a balance needs to be struck, and to recognize yeah. we, we need to. Speaking protect of
3: Greensville, um, I had a great great grandfather who was a uh,
2: in, in an, Ohio, or an Iowa
3: regiment that uh, after Bentonville, um, I think they were up in that area, uh, getting ready to march north to the Grand Review after the Civil War. And, And uh, they liberated some Bull Durham uh, uh, tobacco shops up in that area, and uh, they were told to burn the place, but uh, they they burned it in a very slow way. (laughs) 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 The Union troops, uh, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. helped save uh, Bull Durham out in that area simply by not following Sherman's orders at that Mm -hmm.
2: time. That's right. It was probably actually Greensboro as opposed to Greensboro, Greensboro. my guess, which uh, uh we get confused. We also here in Greenville, North Carolina, we get mail for Greenville, South Carolina. I see. Okay. Um we're well, This is in North
3: Carolina somewhere Mayor. Uh,
2: Greensboro is, is is a yeah. good bit bigger. We're we're east of Raleigh. Greensboro is west. Uh it okay. could be Greenville, though, uh conceivably.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um but I, I don't think Sherman's troops came came near here. They this is a little bit uh, east, east of where they went, uh, but west of the fighting around New Bern, and, and uh, right. uh, there there was another set of actions, uh, Washington and Plymouth and so on, uh, in eastern North Carolina. But let's get back out west. The, uh, we were talking about the, the activity of, of Tom Ewing, Jr. joining the 11th Kansas. Um, uh, they they fight at Prairie Grove, but the, the action that, that Ewing really gets known for takes place after the uh the sack of lawrence uh yeah. tell us a bit about that
3: well after his service in uh, in arkansas he was named by president lincoln uh, to be the district commander in kansas and eastern or western missouri and um was uh, happened to be the commander there took over in uh, may of 1863 and and uh of course, in August, August twenty-first of eighteen sixty-three is when Quantrell raided Lawrence and, and uh, sacked the place and killed one hundred and fifty plus men and boys, most of whom were unarmed. And um, um, Ewing retaliated uh, in a pretty stern way, uh, issuing uh, uh, Order Number Eleven, which um, basically told everybody in uh, four. Western Missouri counties uh, around the Kansas City area, and including the Kansas City area, that they had to be forcibly emigrated into Arkansas. That uh, that got rid of all of the southern sympathizers in those areas, and uh, northern sympathizers could go to the main towns and stay there. But everybody had to get off their farms, and of course that was a a major relocation of people, uh, anywhere from. Ten to twenty thousand of them uh, into Arkansas, and it was uh, very, very controversial. It was the type of thing that would follow a political man uh, it, it, through his entire political career, and it, did it didn't. To you, uh, I say it didn't
2: help that uh, the, the famous painter George Caleb Bingham uh, uh, painted uh, his his interpretation of this yeah. action, uh, yeah. which shows the families leaving their land uh, yeah. as refugees.
3: Bingham not only misrepresented what happened in that painting, but uh, he was given a lot more credit for uh, the defeat of Tom Ewing when Ewing ran for governor of Ohio in 1880 than actually occurred. Um, the uh, Republicans uh, at that time actually were pleading with people not to raise the fact uh, that Ewing was uh, has a strong war record uh, because they were trying to paint him as a peacenik uh, as a as an appeaser of the South and uh, kind of a... They called him Tissue Thomas during that uh, campaign. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and uh, they... Uh, but, yeah, Brigham uh, Bingham got a lot of credit for uh, Ewing's defeat because of that painting, but um, Ewing didn't take part in the actual movement by cavalry of people into Arkansas. That was uh, uh, obviously not something... a de- uh, department commander would do. Um, but uh yeah, he he got a lot of controversial uh flack from that.
2: Well, and that that uh I mean has echoes today when you have uh, an insurgency where you have uh people you can't separate uh military from civilian uh when you're trying to establish order but mm-hmm. uh, you don't know who the enemy is. Uh you know, in Vietnam, in Iraq, oh, yeah. Afghanistan uh, uh or in southwest Missouri, uh, who's uh, who's the enemy and who isn't? And one solution, right. uh, as an order number eleven, is just everybody get out. Uh, right, and it, but it, it's harsh.
3: Yeah, it was harsh, but uh, uh, as I say in my book, uh, never again was a Kansas town ever raided uh, by Missouri guerrillas uh, ever again, and and it did its work, and it was actually in in place only about three months, so it really, uh, and then they lifted it, uh, and then people started coming back, but um, it, it, uh, it served its purpose.
2: Now, Ewing, uh, as you say, as a district commander, he's not out there with the cavalry actually moving families right. off their farms, but uh, not too long afterwards, he does get involved uh, directly in the fighting at a, a really remarkable little battle. Uh, at at Pilot Uh, Knob. Tell us about that.
3: Well, Pilot Knob, Missouri, is uh, down in the boot heel, a little north of the boot heel of Missouri, on the east side there. And and, um, um, In 1864, the the Confederates were having, of course, a difficult time. Uh, Grant was coming at Lee to try to take Richmond. Sherman was going against Johnston to try to take Atlanta. Uh, George Crook was working in the Shenandoah Valley. And they, they had coordinated their attacks uh, to try to pin down all of the Confederate armies, and, and there's, there's indications in the official records that the Confederates knew if they could hold on and embarrass the federal government um, during the 1864 summer campaigns that um, uh, they might be able to get the voters to vote Lincoln out of office. And if they could do that, then McClellan would be the president of the United States and he'd already indicated he would make an armistice with the South. And and then presumably you would have uh, two countries and two governments and you would have slavery still intact in the southern states. And um, so the only mobile um, uh, Confederate army that was available to make any kind of uh, foray into uh, union areas was in northeast Arkansas. Uh, General Sterling Price and Price put together about 15,000 men, mostly mounted infantry, and they started north. and Their their objective initially was St. Louis. They wanted to get to St. Louis, uh, wreck the town if they could, um, and uh, uh, destroy the town, the wharfs, the the military presence there, and hopefully knock Missouri out of the union orbit and um uh, and then uh, that that uh, bit of uh, embarrassment might be enough to tip the scales in the November election of course um, they they started this campaign after sherman had taken atlanta in early september but still you know there was hopes that if they could be successful that that still might generate enough dissatisfaction among voters to to kick lincoln out of office but Ewing was sent down to Pilot Knob, Missouri, at little Fort Davidson to do a kind of a reconnaissance, and he was giving General Rosencrantz uh, an eye view of uh, what was going on. And uh, when he got down there, he got uh, got hemmed in, and and there was this little earthen fort there at Pilot Knob, which is still there. It's a marvelous little battlefield site if people want to go down there. Uh, it's a it's a highly recreational area of the state of Missouri, and it's very well kept uh, by the curator down there, who was Walt Bush, and uh, who is a also a Ewing scholar, and I quote part of his work in my book. Um, and um, he uh, in that battle, uh, there were about 800 y- uh, Union forces against the 15,000 Confederates coming up the that valley. And uh, they, in, a, in an afternoon, uh, caused so many casualties of Sterling Price's troops that he calls off and has to make new plans. He He's not able to, to go against St. Louis. He was afraid there might even be a bigger force waiting on him there. And uh, so he turns west and um, uh, goes to Kansas City and is defeated at the Battle of Westport and then has to slink back into northwest Arkansas. And um, so the Ewing's a little battle there at, the, at uh, Fort Davidson uh, where he was totally surrounded by his 15,000 troops. Uh, I think he had a price on his head. Uh, he might well if he'd have, if he'd have been captured he might well have been uh, executed uh, by the South uh, for, for order number eleven and um, but, but he <laughs> in the middle of the night he uh, you know his troops, the, those that are left after the all-day battle, They steal out in the middle of the night, walk right between two regiments of Southern troops, and escape. And um, uh, it was a great little uh, uh, running battle there for 60 miles uh, to get away. But uh, it was quite a. I devote a chapter of the book to the Thermopylae of the West, is what it's called uh, by historians.
2: Well, it's a very interesting chapter, and really a, quite a remarkable story. Uh, there's there's more to the remarkable story of Thomas Ewing. He uh, ends up defending Doctor Mudd at his trial for the assassination, and has a interesting post war political career, but. Alas, we are out of time today, so I'll recommend to our listeners that they uh, take a look at Thomas Ewing, Jr., Frontier Lawyer and Civil War General. It's by Ronald D. Smith, our guest today, and learn about this uh, very interesting family. Ron, thanks so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you, Professor. I appreciate it.
2: And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.